Welcome to episode 100 of the Combinate podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sade, and on this episode, I was joined again by one of my favorite guests, the person I recorded with first, Larry Mager. In this episode, expect to learn about how Larry and I first recorded. Back then, it was on an iPhone and a set of AirPods as I was walking around my garage, and I'm grateful that I've invested in a microphone since then. But tremendous amount of gratitude goes to Larry, all of the other guests that I've had on the show, and most importantly, anyone who listens to it. In this episode, expect to learn about quality, big Q, little Q, building a quality management system and commercializing a product at a startup early in Larry's career and some of the lessons that he's learned more recently in pharma and combination product companies. Larry ends off by talking about difficulties in communicating quality in companies and advice that he would give to a younger version of himself. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Larry. And again, thank you so much for the support in listening to this podcast. If you're not already, please do pause and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And with that, here is episode 100 with Larry. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sadeh. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of the Combinate Podcast. I actually start out every episode saying it's a very special episode because it's special to me. But this is a special squared episode for two reasons. One, we have Larry Mager here, who is one of my favorite people that I've ever talked to on the podcast. And two, because this is episode 100. And I wanted to take it back to where it all started. I'll start with a story before I start asking Larry some questions. I started the podcast a couple of years ago and Larry was the first person who agreed to do the podcast before it was ever a podcast. So I had zero episodes published, didn't have a website. I don't even know if I had a logo and Larry took the feeler on me and I'm very grateful that he did. It was, I had read his book. I loved it. I had always wanted to talk to him and so he was the first person that I reached out to and he said yes. And I think the um, kind of ground floor comes to mind in that I think those types of things are very helpful to building the confidence of a person. And I was like, in my head, this is going to be way harder than I thought it was going to be. And I'm going to have to reach out to a hundred people before one person agrees. And then I reach out to Larry and he's, yeah, I'll do it. And it was like, oh, this is, this might not be as hard as I thought it was going to be. And I was off to the races and it's been a hundred weeks since I've posted an episode every week. And though to, to Larry, it may not have been a big deal. 
it, it was a big deal for me. It, the, that first spark in the engine, even if there's a full tank of gas, you still got to ignite it. Welcome, Larry. This, thank you so much. I'm always humbled when you do those introductions because I just am. I'll just leave it there. Appreciate it. Larry has a, a different take on quality than I've heard before. I think that's the other thing that I thought was really helpful in that there's a different way to approach quality that I think is not the typical med tech, pharma, regulated industry approach. And I wanted to start the discussion, Larry, by asking, were you always like this? The answer is yes and no. But let me explain that. So working as a young engineer, not long out of college, with a big Fortune 500 company that really taught the foundational aspects of being a quality engineer, including getting what was then like a Six Sigma engineering accreditation. They called it something different. So I was very regimented in what quality is to that company. And it's a, it's a very technical, I guess that was a very technical place come that I was at. And then I became interested. I was at, I was courted to go to a company in Silicon Valley, California, startup company. And I was the fourth person into that company and my, how do I say this? My quality training, I was actually, I was the head of operations. I was handed a very rudimentary prototype and the three other people in the company was three other people. One person didn't work in it was the president, the vice president of sales, which was the president's brother and the head of cardiovascular surgery at San Jose at the time. And he didn't work in the company, but he was tied to the prototype. And the prototype that they gave me was absolute, had a, it was just a prototype. I wanted to say garbage, but not that's taken away from their vision. But they said to me, you're the director. No, not in a commercial state. Can you, can, now we need to produce this. And my first office was in the closet of the, uh, the small building we were in. So we had nothing. And I had a prototype that wasn't my, technical expertise that I had with what I learned from that big fortune 500 company was not directly applicable. And my job was to get that thing into production. So the paradigm that I had at the time, really without knowing it reverted back to how do I make this work? What does good look like? Because I knew it had to work. And actually I'll tell you, it's a cardiovascular product still marketed today that arrests your heart without cracking your chest and it's used with the da Vinci robot. So we're not talking about some light type of product. So I had to make it good. And so at that time, my paradigm shifted from what the big fortune 500 company taught me, big Q to little Q. And I didn't think of it then as big Q and little Q, but that's, I think that's how I began. Long story short, that product is still in the market today, still used today. We, I made changes for manufacturability in the design, and my name is at the top of the patent. And I'm very proud of those changes that I made, but I had to verify and validate and vet everything out. So yeah, I think I went from one 
environment to another. And that probably more than anything else, either I would have, you know, the old sink or swim, either I would have failed because I wasn't able to just think in a way that says, let's make this thing work. Let's make it good. So that was the big, probably foundational, what gave me the foundational characteristics I have today for what I've done since. So had you seen that's where your quality maturity was going naturally and it just so happened that experience took you there or did it, do you think you would have landed there without the startup, get this thing to me? No, it happened. It did happen naturally through, as I said, I was the fourth person in, I did all this work, but as we, I had to work through a supplier network. So I had to work with suppliers. And component by component, material by material, I had to define what good was. And so I did all of that. We got it into production, but then we were growing. And so in order to let loose of certain roles, I had to define them. So I had to create, I created the entire, at the time, I didn't think of it as a quality system. I thought of it as a system of documentation to transfer work to people that we wanted to bring in. And so I naturally, in order to do the work that I, the way I wanted it done, I had to define that there's the plan phase and then train people to do it. And there's the do phase. We didn't do any measurement back then. So I didn't have check in that in, in my head. And we, I actually built the entire quality system in doing that and, or the QMS and then the quality system for training people. The FDA came in zero forty threes. And that was actually my first experience being directly accountable to that FDA outcome. And I knew from that other company that it doesn't always go well. So it went really when I was very pleased. And I think my paradigm shift occurred without me knowing it, but I was understanding. And I would recommend everybody, if you have an opportunity to work in a small company to understand what success looks like. And it has, to, it's all parts of the company. If you think about it, I entered and I, even though they gave me the title of head of operations, I was doing design and I had to document all that. And the reason I did was for the patent less, let not necessarily a design history file, but all that got put together and I went from design to operations to quality with the FDA coming in. So I wore a lot of hats, but I also knew by how many boxes were at the back door or other things, whether or not the doors would be open next month. So you, I would have encouraged people to, to step back and think about their company holistically and what role they serve and how does that support the company in its, in fulfilling its mission. What happened next? I developed another product with that company that is, again, is in the market today. That company ended up getting sold. I came back to the Midwest from Silicon Valley and I entered into an organization that eventually went in. And so when I came back to the Midwest, I was pulled back by a general manager at a plant in the Midwest who used to work for that first company that I worked for. He was a plant manager in Illinois and he called me and he said, come and got a nice sleepy job for you. And it was at a manufacturing facility with Oh, about 1,500 people, 1,400, 1,500 people in the Midwest. 
and I became the head of quality at that plant. And then the FDA rained investigators down across the manufacturing network for that company. And we ended up in consent decree because of our systems. And that company, just a state, they're very solid today. They were solid then, but what they had, what had occurred was that they had grown by acquisition. So they had multiple quality systems, a lot of chaos, but I learned how we would remediate. We, we took every head of quality. We went out to the corporate headquarters for a number of sessions and we created a single corporate quality system that was workable for every manufacturing facility. And then we, my job was then after working with a team of people to create that, come back and implement it into the manufacturing facility. And so that's where I got my first picture, my big picture look at how that remediation process occurs. I think we left a lot on the table, but we actually did well for the company and how quick, quickly we removed the corporate warning letter. And from that point on, my entire career was really focused on helping companies understand their quality systems better. And I think I, I spent a long time up until the recent seven, eight years, I don't know, frustrated that every company was different. Every quality system was different, breaking through barriers of communication, so on and so forth. So the culture part caused everything to be different. And I remained frustrated that I wasn't able to articulate uh, a bigger picture. And that's why I landed, so landed where I am today in wanting to be able to tell the story. And I put it in the terms of predictive quality management and plan your work, do your work, check the results of your work, and then act to improve the quality constraint of that work. So and, that, right. and so your frustration was in the not being able to communicate a simple fix to a common problem. Yeah, I don't know that it's a simple fix because... Well, simple doesn't mean easy. Yeah, it's that talking in the detailed language of what the quality system requirements in the medical device world or the requirements in any world, the executives, they don't have, you don't get the time, they don't have the appetite to listen to it. They just want quality to make sure that they're not going to be in trouble from the FDA. And the frustration there was I always knew from that earlier experience in my career that it's building that quality little cue in that makes the business hump. The success of the business comes from quality. Quality is the thing that drives everything. And especially you look at the automotive industry or the com computer industry or things like that. If you get a poor quality product, you're not selling that product in the regulated life sciences business that I worked in medical device, my whole career and pharma near the end of it, in terms of being more working with the quality systems. I, I just think, unfortunately, the focus on compliance in the life sciences industry got in the way of having a conversation about being compliant to that. Yes, but effective in getting results and efficient in doing so. At what point did you move into consulting? Because you were in, you mentioned being the head of quality at the site right outside of Chicago, dealing with the 
remediation, then what happened? It wasn't outside of Chicago, but yes, that was, I'll say that. Oh, the person that reached out to you was in Niles. Yeah, I was in the Midwest, but not in the state of Illinois. It was really immediately after that. I went in, I took a consulting role, believing that I'm going to change the world. And the problem is you're plugged in. Unfortunately, companies will be in trouble. And the very same people that led them there and presided over those systems will take a consultant with ideas and they'll say, sit down and do what we tell you to do. And I can't even tell you, I worked for other consulting companies and within programs and how often it's just a compliance focus and it always frustrated. You can't break through. It's, Listen, we're running this. Here's what we have to do to get them out of trouble with the FDA. And I got it. They said, yeah, I understand. But it was always frustrating. Some roles I took, one role was with a cardiovascular company. It was a heart pump. And they told me the sister company residing on the same campus is in warning letter and moving into consent decree. And we don't want to be involved. And it's a small company sitting again in a building between their buildings. So they said, we don't want to bring you in as a consultant. So they made me the VP of quality. And so there are some stretches of my career where I spent in an executive role in typically in a company, but I was there for a defined reason and for a defined term. So I became truly, I don't know, consultative after that first company that had the corporate consent decree. And ever since I've evolved, it depends on what role I was in. I've evolved my learning and understanding to the point where I got to the place where I just said, I think having a defined solution that I, so I can point to, for example, my pqmcoach.com site and people can go explore it because we don't even have enough time to talk about it in a podcast. We can talk about a topic. So I felt compelled to get the concept that I believe would be good for companies to utilize out and documented and established in a way where then I can highlight certain aspects, but it's always tied to the same foundational plan, do, check, act methodology that Edwards, W. Edwards Deming espoused. I was talking to somebody who is pretty high up in quality recently and was asking them, where do you go from here? And I thought their answer was really peculiar and interesting, shifted my mindset. It maybe helped some things click for me that maybe for one reason or another hadn't clicked before. Their answer was maybe to move to heading operations. And in many cases, particularly, I think more in pharma than in medical device, QA reports into, or I should say quality reports into an operations function, whereas in medtech, more of the chief quality officer role than in pharma. Long story short, why not move into operations? Because it seems like the PQM stuff is like little Q operations, little Q for everybody. Including quality. So breaking down silos in an organization is extremely important. And you've heard me talk before about creating the capability or capabilities necessary to 
achieve or fulfill the mission of the organization. So that's why, so I guess to me, just moving into one company in, in operations and doing something in one company isn't enough. I want to be able to lay something out that is industry agnostic. Quality is universal, right? So that's why I decided to create a solution to, to articulate everything that I've learned in my career now, up till now and be able to provide that solution mostly for free. In the PQM Coach website, there is coursework. I guess the idea is that I, I decided not to go back into any role with any one company. And I'm also, listen, you're a young man. I'm, I probably got another decade left in my tank and I'm excited about the work that I do. And, but if I get sidelined tomorrow health-wise or something like that, it's over. So I want to be able to put information for people to use. I want to get it out there. I want to make a difference in industry, all industry. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. I interviewed H. James Harrington last year and somebody I respect a lot. And he's in his nineties and working on standards committees and doing a lot of work on the topic of being industry agnostic. I don't know if it's more recently or you've dealt with these industries in the past, but I know you've moved into pharma and combination products. You've also moved into the CRO space as well. What have you learned? Pharma people typically believe that none of the other quality system, quality management system requirements apply to them. It's a make the soup, taste the soup, and see if it's good. We could get into all the regulation tied to combination product and EUMDR and especially go look up article 117 and be shocked when you learn that part of it applies to you. So you better have medical device requirements down within your system. But let's just go back to the make the soup, taste the soup, and tell me if it's good. If you have an expensive production process and you didn't follow quality by design, you didn't implement critical to quality controls in production, and you didn't measure it, something that went wrong with an ingredient coming in the door or an early production step, and you still put all that money into your production, and then you do your batch test and your assay fails, that is not what your stakeholders want. That's an expensive, wasteful business. So intrinsically, when I say quality is universal, the quality thing to do would be to monitor that all the way through, understand how it's going. And that's just production. What about the business processes? Again, you could have a highly regulated quality process and people have a lot of scrutiny over that process, but you could have something else related to a core competency or a core capability that the company needs and it's run very sloppily, but quality has no oversight to that because there's no regulation. Again, shame on you. That's irresponsible management. So I believe management responsibility is plan your work, do your work, check the results of that work. And, and that means maybe even early on, if you look at process risk, where can something go wrong? What's critical to quality? And that's production in business process. And then target the constraint. 
what is the thing that's hurting you the most? Dedicate specific resources to fix that, but run a quiet and non-chaotic organization in a very disciplined way in the meantime. Did you have any failures that were really formative? Oh, yeah. Or not even a learning opportunity. Either, either you win or you learn and all that. But I think people that are a little bit later in their career tend to be more comfortable talking about those. Yeah, yeah. And I could get into technical failures around design or production process or things like that. But I, <clears throat> the biggest failures, I would say, really came around trying to communicate concepts and ideas. So, for example, walking into a company with a with an understanding of what I had in my head and but then trying to communicate so communication is difficult amongst people it's difficult in an organization and you've experienced this the higher up you go in the hierarchy in the corporation or the organization the less time you have to communicate right they always want 15 minutes to tell me what you want to tell me you don't get days and weeks. And even if I would put it in writing, people would say, I don't want to read all that. Just tell me the answer. And the answer to arrive at quality, it's not always easy. The one thing I would say, besides the technical failures that you can correct and move on, I've had many opportunities to communicate and fail. And that's probably what led me to where I am now, which is I've got to get this out. I've got to put it out there in a way that starts from high level, yet people can go learn more about it. And it's, it's more than a book, it's content and how different aspects are teased out and put into perspective. So that's probably communication of what you want to do as a leader, a facilitator, a contributor, whatever it is, it's, it's about getting across the big picture and then being able to in layers, unwrap it or unpeel it like an onion. What advice would you give Larry 30 years ago? <laughs> Besides communicate. This is probably in every aspect of everything that we do, but it's that people are important. People, we talk about <clears throat> W. Edwards Deming and all work is process, but people do that work. Okay. And with people, there, you have to earn their trust. So as a leader walking into lead a group, I'm given trust and employees willingly participate and you start from that place. But where you go from there, people constantly assess the competency and integrity of what you're doing as they're being led. And in some cases, I failed people because I was probably more my way and very rigid, but people have to become very proactively engaged and personally accountable for the work that they do and the results that they get. Otherwise, they shut down. So their personal commitment to quality comes from that zeal to, to do that work through the results that they obtain. And that has to be done person by person. So we have to look at our workforce as people, they're all different. They're all in different places. There's a, there's a the chairman of General Foods, it was, and he said, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but he said, you can buy a man's time and you can buy his 
physical presence, but you can't buy his enthusiasm. You can't buy his loyalty and you cannot buy the devotion of hearts, minds, and souls or something like that. You have to earn that. And I would say you have to earn it every day. So Larry, 30 years ago, I think in the environment when I was in Silicon Valley and I was working with a completely sourced operations where we didn't produce anything, it was all done by outsourcing. I had to work with, and we were a small company, so I had to work with every one of those people and get them to devote what they're doing and the time they were providing to us. And so I think I spent more time with personal interaction. So I, with all the technical stuff and all the framework, and you can put that in place, but much like the plan phase, the management responsibility to build that, the do phase, if you don't get your people engaged and it's, it's more than training and competency, it's truly engaging those people with getting results through the work that was planned and letting them know if it's not working, you're not held accountable as long as you're compliant to execution and we're going to fix this for you. So that's what I would probably advise Larry. Thank you so much, Larry, for all your help with the podcast. It's been phenomenal getting to know you. I love all the work you do. Any closing thoughts? I guess the one thought I have for people is they look at predictive quality management and go to pqmcoach.com to see that would be transcend the paradigm of quality being the quality organization and think of little Q quality being how well the business runs and that goes across the business. And if you can do that, it doesn't matter if you're in the quality profession or what group you're in, you can be a quality leader. As a matter of fact, they say everybody is responsible for quality. This is how everybody be can become responsible for quality. You can run plan, do, check, act within your own department. You can run it across the entire enterprise. You can do it in one process, but do it. And if it's not the plan, do, check, act process, figure out how you want to build quality, but become a quality leader, little Q. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Subi.